coming up, checking in on which D-back should be going home with a Go Glove Award, and part three of our top 10 most disappointing D-backs from 2022 power ranking, all coming up on today's Locked on Dimebacks podcast. <laughs> Locked on Diamondbacks, your daily Arizona Diamondbacks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome into the Locked On Diamondbacks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day listening to the always charismatic host of this podcast, Miller Thomas. I'm a multimedia journalist and I'm a graphic designer, so please go check out my website, MillerThomas24.myportfolio.com. I'm there you can see all my latest work, from my packages to my articles to my photos and my graphic design. If you want to see more content by me, just follow me on Twitter, at CreatorThomas24 for my personal account, or just look up Locked On Diamondbacks on both Twitter, Instagram for the podcast. Handle and of course, thank you for making Lockdown Dimebacks your first listen every day. For more Lockdown Dimebacks coverage, go check us out on YouTube as well. Locked on Diamondbacks on there. And also, I want to tell you today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online has you covered this season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online, where the game starts now. We're going to be doing part three of our top 10 most disappointing D-backs in 2022 power ranking. But before we get there, MLB announced yesterday the Gold Glove finalists in Major League Baseball. And of course, we only care about the National League. And so let's check in on which D-backs were announced for awards. And should those D-backs win those awards? Because surprise, surprise to no one, the entire D-backs outfield was nominated as a finalist, but the names in the outfield might be the ones that shock you. Now, when you look at the right field, your gold glove finalists, because there's three finalists for each one, you got Mookie Betts, you got Juan Soto, and then you got our guy Dalton Varsho in right field, and I think Dalton Varsho has a great case to go home with the gold glove. Mookie Betts has won the gold glove award five straight years four in Boston and one in LA before his streak ended a year ago. And he's going to be another great bet to win again. Mookie Betts is one of the best defensive players in all baseball, one of the best defensive right fielders I've ever seen. I've told you guys before, I grew up as a Red Sox fan. I got a Mookie Betts Red Sox t-shirt jersey. I love Mookie Betts, and he's going to have a great case to win the Gold Glove Award. He just has so much already built-in equity with the voters. Like Everyone already knows Mookie Betts is a stud defensive player, so he could kind of also skate a little bit on his name. Maybe if his defensive metrics are like, you know, still elite, but not nearly what they used to be. He's still got the name value to at least carry him. Juan Soto, I think, is a good defensive player, but I never viewed him as like a, a go-glove right fielder. Like I don't think Juan Soto is making the kind of plays that Moogie Betts is making because I just don't think he's as, as athletic as guys like Dalton Varsho and Mookie Betts. I don't think he has that same kind of range. Maybe he's got the kind of arm and can throw out dudes, but I don't think he's got the range to do that. And then for Dalton Varsho, like, if you look at the metrics, I think – Dalton Marshall is like the best defensive outfielder in all of baseball. When you look at a lot of the defensive metrics from defensive run same to ultimate zone run rating to Ranger, like there's a whole bunch of different metrics. He's also tied for the MLB lead among outfielders with 17 outs above average. But I think the only reason if you had to make a case against Dalton Varsho winning the gold glove in right field is the fact that he played 82 games as catcher or 
excuse me, he played 31 games at catcher this season. He only played like 50, he, he played 54 games in center field this year. Like he wasn't primarily a right fielder. Like Dalton Varsho is also considered a super, uti- super utility guy. His primary position is considered right field. So the metrics tell you he was the best defensive outfielder, but the only hesitancy to not give him the award is because he plays everywhere. And maybe you feel like, okay, if we're going to give a right fielder the Go Glove Award, Dalton Varsha might have been the best defensive player to play right field, but Mookie Betts is actually a full-time right fielder. So I think that's the only case against Dalton Varsha not winning the Gold Glove Award in right field is the fact that he's not a full-time right, right fielder. He's just the best defensive player in baseball to play right field. That makes sense. For center field, we got Trent Grisham of the Padres, who is a stud defensive player. I wouldn't be upset if he won this. Victor Robles of the Nationals, like... Who watches Victor Robles? Seriously, on the Nationals? Come on. And then Alec Thomas for the D-backs. And Grisham is a beast. He, he I think he led MLB with 17 outs above average in center field. And this will be his second gold glove in the past three seasons for Trent Grisham. So he's going to be, uh, he's going to have a great case. For Alec Thomas, I mean, I think if you made the case for him, it's the fact that he probably has the best defensive highlight reel of any center fielder in baseball with the range he made, um, with the range he has, tracking the balls down, the jump he gets, the instinct, the multiple home run robberies. Go back to the Joey Votto home run robbie, uh, robbery, the diving stops he had in center field. Like, I think he was the best defensive center fielder, but he also didn't play center field to like the second month of the season. If I try to actually, maybe I should actually look up how many games um, Alec Thomas played this season because I feel like he probably didn't get a ton. He played 113 games overall this year, and the last month of the year, he was kind of demoted a little bit, didn't get to play as much time. So I think if you weren't going to give to Alec Thomas, is because of more of a sample size kind of a reason. He started the year late in the major leagues and then didn't finish the year in the major leagues, even though, again, like Dalton Varsho, I think he was the best defensive center fielder we saw this year. He wasn't doing it full-time like maybe a Trent Grisham. So I think that's the reason Alec Thomas won't win it. I could see Dalton Varsha winning it a lot more likely than Alec Thomas, even though I think Alec Thomas is deserving too. But Trent Grisham, I think, has a really strong case, and he's got some pedigree as well. So I think Varsha, I, I do think Varsha could win the right field. I wouldn't bet on that, but I definitely don't feel good about Alec Thomas winning the center field one. And then the left field one because i said the entire d-backs outfield was nominated the left field one is kind of weird because you got ian happ of the chicago cubs you got christian yelich of the milwaukee brewers then you got david peralta freight train as a d-backs gold glove finalist in left field and of course david peralta was traded at the deadline so that's kind of weird finished the second half of the american league and still nominated for a nationally gold glove award he won it back in 2019 so it wouldn't be his first gold glove Christian Yelich won a Gold Glove Award back in 2014. I think the left field Gold Glove is just kind of weak. Like Ian Happ has been primarily a center fielder in his career. Did send uh, did left field like primarily this season. Was an All Star this year. So I feel like, excuse me, Ian Happ is probably the leading candidate for this. I just find it hard to believe David Peralta is going to win the National League Left Field Gold Glove Award, playing only half a season in the National League and. He was a good defensive player, but he's also a little bit older. I think he, I think he's just a very high IQ defensive player, a solid arm, David Peralta, but he doesn't have the same range as the Thomases and the Dalton Varshals of the world. So I would be very surprised if David Peralta won the gold glove just because, I mean, the case against him is easy. He only played half the season in the National League, and I don't think he was getting a super ton of run in 
uh, Tampa Bay, and he really didn't do anything for Tampa Bay. So I can't see David Peralta. I think that's going to be Ian Happ's award to lose. Then the last D-back that was nominated for a Gold Glove Award was none other than Christian Walker, and this is going to be the most loaded Gold Glove position probably in the National League because you got Paul Goldschmidt who's going to probably win the MVP. He also has a shot at his fifth Gold Glove Award. Of course, he won a ton of those with the D-backs. He also got the reigning winner, Matt Olson, a two-time winner in the American League with the A's and now in the National League. And of course, I mean, I didn't watch a ton of Matt Olson, but I'm sure if he was a two-time winner in the American League, the reigning champ there, I'm pretty sure he was a very good defensive first baseman this season. But the man who led all MLB first baseman and stat cast outs above average was Christian Walker. I don't even think it's close with defensive metrics. If you look at it for first baseman, Christian Walker is like number one at the top of every list. So I think the name value is definitely going to Paul Goldschmidt and Matt Olson. Like I said, Goldie could win his fifth. Matt Olson could win, I guess, his third straight or at least his third overall. Like those are multi-time Gold Glove winners. Meanwhile, Christian Walker just kind of had this breakout season, not as well known. Hopefully the riders look at the metrics. Hopefully the riders really take analytics into account because I know that's what we care about in today's game. So I think Christian Walker, if I had to bet on it, I would bet on Christian Walker to win the Gold Glove because I know the voters are going to do us right and actually look at this objectively because that's what you're supposed to do in baseball more than any other sport. So if you're doing that, Christian Walker is by far and away the leading candidate to win the Gold Glove Award. And then if I had to make predictions for the other ones, or at least power rank my confidence in the other D-backs win the awards. I'll probably go Dalton Marshall number two because I think he also just ran away with defensive metrics, even though he primary, even though he played like all over the field. Number three, I would probably go Alec Thomas, even though he only played 113 games. I think his defensive highlight reel is insane. And then fourth, I gotta go David Peralta because he only played half the year in the National League, and it's hard for me to believe that guy could win a National League award. So. Christian Walker, I do think you're coming home with the Gold Glove Award, and you're going to make us D-backs fans proud. And if we're lucky, Dalton Varsho will be joining you as well. And if you want to bet on which D-backs are going to come home with the Gold Glove Award, you need to head to betonline.net because betonline.net is your number one source for betting. Excuse me. BetOnline.net is your number one source for betting football and the start of the new basketball season. Find all the latest player developments, team matchups, news, podcasts, and in-depth analysis on every game. And as always, BetOnline remains your continued source for all your sports wagering information with live betting and up-to-the-minute scores for every sport out there. The fastest and easiest way to check in on all your favorite games and events, including MLB, MMA, boxing and golf head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more bet online where the game starts all right all right all right Let's get back to the podcast. Let me put my lower third on because now it's time for part three of power ranking the top 10 most disappointing D-backs from the 2022 season. This is really a power ranking no one wants to do because you want everyone on your team to impress, right? No one wants to have 10 disappointing players, but somehow I was able to make a list of 10 and now we're going to be unveiling number six and number five today because number six, and even though he's number six on this list, number one spiritually, 
he's number one in my heart because this is someone that I was really big on entering this season. This is someone I think in the preseason I said was going to be the breakout candidate for this season's D-backs team. I thought he was going to be the rookie of the year for the D-backs. I thought this guy was going to be a true offensive force in the D-backs lineup. I thought this guy might push Christian Walker out of his spot and maybe make Christian Walker a trade asset. I thought this was going to be the best player from that Zach Greinke trade because at number six, I got Seth Beer and Seth Beer ended up being a huge disappointment and not the guy I thought he was going to be. I was so in on Seth Beer because just looking at him last season in the small low sample size Seth Beer had with the D-backs. I know the sample size was small. He literally only played five games, literally only had nine at-bats, but in those nine at-bats in 2021, man, they were a phenomenal nine at-bats because he had four hits in those nine at-bats. He had a double. He had a home run. He had three RBIs. He looked great in those nine at-bats, and plus, he this is someone that crushed on the minor league level. This is someone you looked at every phase of his career, every level. He's crushed minor leagues, Single A, double A, triple A, doesn't matter. He crushes minor league pitching. He crushes in that five-game sample size. I was like, this is a guy that can really help carry the offense in 2022 with the Ketel Martes and maybe the Christian Walkers and then a Dalton Varsho and a Carson Kelly. And then you put Seth Beer in the mix as your middle of the order. Bat, maybe batting number five. I had so many expectations for Seth Beer. Probably too much. Probably I shouldn't have had them this high. And I can see why. Because Seth Beer was like, uh, he was like a shooting star. He came quickly. He burned hot. And then he disappeared right away. Because if you remember... Those first 13 games Seth Beer had in 2022, man, did Seth Beer look like an all-star. Man, did I feel good about my prediction because in those first 13 games, Seth Beer, he batted 385, a near 1,000 OPS. But in the next 27 games, Seth Beer had six hits total, 27 games, six hits total, 385 average of the first 13 games. And if you remember, the season started with a bang because opening night, opening day, it was National Beer Day. And in the ninth inning, with two men on, what does Seth Beer do on National Beer Day? Walk off home run against the San Diego Padres who seem to beat us every opening day. On Beer Day, you do that? It was divine intervention. I made the prediction earlier that day, and then on Beer Day, Seth Beer was going to do that. I looked like a genius those first couple of weeks. And then it all fell apart. Seth Beer, somehow, terrible against the lefties, despite, or excuse me, Seth Beer, terrible against righties, despite being a left-handed batter. Seth Beer, not very good against righties. 176 average and a 496 OPS against righties. Um, you don't like to see that. And you know I love to look at the split when a batter is ahead in the count versus behind in the count. Or I do that for opposing, or excuse me, I do that for our pitchers as well. When they're ahead in the count versus when they're behind the count. Because whether you're a batter or a pitcher, if you have the favorable count, your numbers are astronomically better than when you're behind in the count. Like that makes total sense, right? For a batter, I've talked about this. If you're up 2-0 in the count, it's a lot easier to predict what pitchers are coming next. You know the pitcher has to throw strikes. Vice versa, if you're a pitcher and you got the 0-2 count on the opposing batter, guess what? I could throw a lot more um different stuff because now the batting the batter's trying to protect the plate. And for Seth Beer, when he was um, when the pitcher was ahead of the count against Seth Beer, that's when you're supposed to struggle, right? And that's what Seth Beer did. When Seth Beer was behind in the count, he had a 139 average and 325 OPS. 
Terrible, terrible, terrible numbers. But you're like, okay, that's what he does when he's behind in the count. How about when Seth Beer is ahead in the count? Well, a 281 average and an 884 OPS, which is like solid, but nothing crazy. Like those numbers when he's ahead in the count aren't crazy. 280 average, 884 OPS. Like a lot of players when they're ahead of the count, it's like 310 average. It's like near 1,000 OPS. But for Seth Beer, I was like, uh, that really didn't. That didn't jump out to me, that 884 OPS or 281 average. I thought it was going to be a lot better than that, especially considering the start to the season he had. And he also, I thought this was going to be a guy that could be a middle-of-the-order bat, but wasn't very good with runners in scoring position. A 208 average, a 727 OPS with runners in scoring position. With men on the bases, a 191 average, a 610 OPS, like... Those first 13 games, he was really a good RBI producer. He really was someone I felt like I could trust with men on, someone I could trust in especially high leverage moments. But by the end of the year, that just wasn't the case. His numbers in high leverage moments was still pretty good throughout the season. Um, it was one of the only bright spots on Seth Beer's resume this year. 300 average and an 800 OPS in high leverage moments. So you definitely take that. But with runners in scoring position for most of the year, he wasn't good like he, he was, like, I think we did the trustworthy power rankings for a little bit to start the season. Like, that first couple weeks of the season, like, Seth Beer, I was like, yo, he's our second best player right now. Like, he's the second most trustworthy player I have in our lineup at that point. Like, I was all in on the Seth Beer train, the bandwagon, whatever you want to call it. I was team Seth Beer all the way, and he really just fumbled the bag for me. And Seth Beer also was just not good against starting pitching, like, he was all right against the bullpen, 277 average, 751 OPS when he went against the bullpen. But against opposing starters, Seth Beer, a 125 average and a 355 OPS. Like, you just can't do that against starting pitching. His hard contact stats also just weren't that great. Like, they just weren't that impressive. His hard contact stats overall, 85.9 exit velocity, 30.4% hard hit percentage. Like, this is someone who's a thicker guy who I thought would really put some power, but his hard contact numbers are, like, worse than Paven Smith. And if you actually look at his normal contact stats, like, at least Paven Smith can, like, get the barrel to the ball and make, like, good contact. 71.3% contact percentage for Seth Beer. Like, that's not going to cut it either. You can't make hard contact and you can't make solid contact either. Bad Babbitt, so he's not good with batting average on um, balls in play. That was only 250 after being 600 in a small little sample size last year, of course. And then this is also somewhat a high ground ball rate, 47% high ground ball rate. Like, that's ridiculously high. And you're just not doing your offense is never going to be good if we're going to have a guy in the middle of your order with almost a 50% ground ball rate. Like, that's just going to lead to too many double plays and quick innings. And he just also wasn't good against any type of pitch. Like, some players are at least good against a fastball, and you're like, all right, you can survive because if it's if you're able to get yourself into a good count and you know a fastball is coming, at least you're able to crush it. But Seth Beer, not good against a fastball, off-speed, or breaking pitch. So, Really, a lot for Seth Beer to work on, and entering next season, my expectations are going to be on the ground because I'm going to have no expectations for Seth Beer. After what I just saw, if he's able to come back around and give me a good offensive showing, then maybe I'll hop back on the bandwagon, but I just saw from this past season, he can give you a good hot two weeks where he looks like one of the best players of baseball and then goes cold the rest of the season, so I'm going to need to see a prolonged season of uh, of doing good from Seth Beer. I'm going to need a Jake McCarthy level of 
of duration of being good before I could believe in you. So Seth Beer, you have a lot to prove to me next year. Now, let's get into our top five. And at number five, let me close some of my Seth Beer tabs. At number five now, checking in on the top 10 most disappointing D-backs from the 2022 season is Carson Kelly. This one hurts me a lot because Carson Kelly is still someone that we feel like has a ton of potential. He's still someone that we feel like you can't give up on him because he's still 28 years old and he does have a skill set within him that you can't find in an everyday catcher. He still can be someone that's not very easy to replace offensively from your catcher, right? It's a lot of theoretical wish casting with Carson Kelly because we have seen him put it together before and we've had seen we we've seen him have stretches where he can get back to that 2019 guy, but he can't do it consistently because Carson Kelly, of course, Phenomenal in 2019, and we all want him to at least get back to that form or expand on it, right? We we saw what he did in 2019, and we're like, okay, this is his base level. Imagine what he's going to be in five years, and you just look at him, you know, three to four years since 2019, and it hasn't been very good. And it wasn't like he put up the most insane numbers in 2019. Like, we all revere his 2019 year, but it wasn't like he put up Buster Posey-level numbers. Like, that's what we have to remember. Like, we all revere his 2019 year. I think it was, like, a godsend season, but it still wasn't, like, a Buster Posey MVP type year like the real number that stuck out from his 2019 season I think is his 18 home runs which is huge and his 826 OPS like if you could get near 20 home runs and 800 plus OPS from your catcher like that's elite stuff that's like an all-star level catcher basically but since then we weren't able to see that and right now I think the best case scenario for Carson Kelly you're like can he just recapture the first half form of what we saw in 2021 like what he did in the first half pre-All-Star break last year because Carson Kelly pre-All-Star break last year, 260 average, 845 OPS, and he looked really good. And then I think he got hurt and that just wasn't the same in the second half. And so now you look at Carson Kelly's numbers and like this season, his numbers were like maybe the worst of his career, at least since being with D-back. His numbers this year were worse than what he did in 2020. Of course, 2020, super, super small sample size, only played 39 games in 2020, but 2020, 221 average, 649 OPS. This year, 211 average, 617 OPS. So Carson Kelly, quite literally worse this year than he was in 2020. I did not think that was possible. And I think with Carson Kelly, when looking at his numbers, like he was not good against both righties and lefties. You would hope he would be good against one of them. But no, 629 OPS against righties, 597 OPS against lefties. I thought he was going to pick it up in the second half. I was always waiting for that breakout half from Carson Kelly, the the one-month stretch where he gets hot. And it just never came. There was never a period where he was able to get going. He was never like able to pick himself off the ground like Carson Kelly in the first half of the season, 194 average, 565 OPS. It felt like he had a little bit of signs of life when he came back from his injury this year, but no, 224 average, 653 OPS in the second half of the season. He just was never able to get it going. And I was telling you about cars. I was telling you about Seth Beer's numbers when he was ahead in the count versus behind in the count. I was like, eh, I wasn't in love with his numbers when he was ahead in the count, but still 281 average and 884 OPS. Like that's still good. I just didn't think it was great. I thought it would be better. But for Carson Kelly, 
Listen to this. When Carson Kelly was behind in the count, a 240 average, a 580 OPS. Like those are those those are numbers you would expect when someone's behind in the count. Like Seth Beer's numbers were absolutely like he was done when he was behind in the count. But those are like numbers you would expect from any batter when they're behind in the count. But how about when Carson Kelly's ahead in the count? 143 average, a 588 OPS. Like his numbers actually get worse. When he's ahead of the count. And that's like the telltale sign, I think, for me. The ma- the most major red flag you can find when figuring out why uh, someone is struggling. Like, you know something's going wrong with a batter if they can't even produce when they're ahead in the count. When they have the numbers suggesting that they should, you know, when the, the, when the expected stats are starting to go up in their favor and the advanced analytics. You know, when you get the next-gen stats pop on the screen that says your probability, your percentage of getting a hit in this scenario is rising because you got the good count. But Carson Kelly, that still isn't true. And I find that very shocking because I don't think Carson Kelly's like a bad offensive player. But I think seeing someone struggle when they're ahead of the count is the biggest sign that's showing that they're in a slump or they're struggling or something just going wrong mentally because I think it just makes absolutely no sense that Carson Kelly's numbers are like that. Was a good runner's scoring position, 193 average and a 562 OPS with runner's scoring position, 572 OPS with men on the bases. Also just straight up terrible in high leverage moments, 121 average and a 384 OPS in high leverage moments. And he was also just... Just no matter what metric you look at, excuse me, he got worse as he got deeper into the ball game because if you looked at it by inning grouping, like innings one through three, 654 OPS, innings four through six, 613 OPS, and then innings seven through nine, 597 OPS. So literally his OPS got worse with each inning grouping as you got deeper into the ball game. And then also if you look at him, Every time uh, he goes up for a new play appearance against a starting pitcher, his numbers go down. So like that first play appearance against a starting pitcher, 708 OPS. Then that second play appearance, 690 OPS. And then that third play appearance against a starting pitcher, 640 OPS. So his numbers get worse and worse as he goes deep into a ball game, which is always a terrible sign as well. His walk rate was way down this season as opposed to we've seen in the past because this year it was an 8.2% walk rate, but it was above 12% in 2021 and uh, above 12% in both 2021 